0: The Limud Toronto Festival takes place on Sunday, November 21st. Limud features educators, performers, authors, activists, and innovators from around the world. The Limud Festival of Jewish Learning celebrates creativity, diversity, inclusivity, and discussion. Everyone is welcome. All tickets to Limud are pay what you can. Learn more at limud.ca.
1: This is Bonjour Chai, the Community Insures Continuity Edition. I'm Avi Fongel de Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Scholar in Calgary. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we talk to Jesse Brown about social media and how it shapes societies, and uh, we continue our book club with a Holocaust Western. Alana, David, how are you guys doing?
0: Doing good. How are you, David?
2: Living the dream in Calgary still. So we're launching
1: something really important. This is a big order of business uh, for us. Um, we are on Twitter. We'd love to, uh, to follow you and for you to follow us. Is that... The, in the early days of Twitter, they used to say this, follow to follow, follow to follow. and uh, Follow for follow. Does, follow for follow. Yeah, that, that doesn't happen anymore. But like... It really doesn't happen anymore. It's really funny, but uh, we'd love uh, to hear from you guys. Uh, We are at Bonjour Chai on Twitter um, and we are launching a Slack channel. A Slack channel um, is going to be a way in which uh, you guys can chat with us and you guys can chat with each other. Um, We will be uh, on Slack, uh, which is a, if you're not a, don't already have slack for work which so many people already do um, you can download it it's a fairly easy chat platform and you can just send us an email uh, at bonjour at the cjn.ca and we will add you to our slack channel uh, where you can talk to us and talk to other fans of the podcast I think this is part of uh, our idea of building out the community of bonjour High people and uh, other frozen chosen uh, in Canada and elsewhere um, are you guys online in general? Like, do you what? What do you do with like yeah. this, the Jewosphere, the Jewish internet, or not? Am I
0: online? Like, which platforms I am do I on? Have what is this question? <laughs> <laughs> do I use a computer? Um. Yeah i'm on I'm on Instagram and Facebook and like I have a Twitter account. I was on Twitter like before Twitter was cool. Like I was using hashtags before my grandparents knew what a hashtag was. Um, so I had, like, a lot of pages, like, thousands and thousands of tweets that the world definitely did not need to see being, like, an angsty teen where you thought that it was, like, okay to post about your feelings on Everybody Twitter. join at Bonjour. So I had to delete Hi. all of those.
1: Oh, I was about to say... <laughs> Join you now! A question Join now me? while we can still see those before she deletes all of them.
0: No, they're already gone. <laughs> oh, they're already gone. I still gone. cringe
2: with all my Facebook but, memories when I look back to 2011, 12, and 13. I say, oh, oh why did I post that on Facebook?
0: Well, you can help us create new memories on our new Twitter account.
2: Yeah,
1: at um, Bonjour Chai, um, check us out, please. Um, please be nice. Um, please be civil. Um, please recognize that uh, all the voices are important. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, check it out and uh, let's uh, get a conversation going uh, about the stuff that we talk about. Before we get to our topic, uh, let me tell you what happens when you buy something from Atelier Lou. Uh Alana, you remember a while ago I showed you this uh, this little bangle over here.
0: Yeah, it was while I was in Montreal, and it, it's kind of it cool, the, yeah. The one that looked like a bone around your
1: wrist. Looks like wrist. a bone. It looks like a femur. I don't know if you've seen this. Can you see this, David? It I looks. I like on indeed. video, but. Uh, can yeah, you describe cool. it? it? On one side, it's basically a... Like a
2: thin, I don't even know how many centimeters that is around your wrist. A nice silver... Millimeters. Uh, millimeters even. Very, very thin. Very fashionable. Yeah, and,
1: and then the other side is what? Oh, it's like two balls.
2: There's like two little balls at the top and then at the bottom where the, uh, where the bracelet would almost connect. But yeah, it does look metallically bony-like
1: so it's a bone it's actually uh, supposed to look like a femur it's a uh, it's a bangle made by deacon and francis which is a wonderful uh, british cufflink and uh, other male men accessories or people accessories uh, uh, maker um, and they have this bangle and it looks like a femur and i remember showing it to somebody's like oh i should buy that for my orthopedic surgeon and i liked it and i ended up buying it and uh, i wear it and somebody asked me like what's, what does it symbolize what's the meaning for it for you and for a while i was just like i don't know it looked kind of cool and Lately, something hit me, and then I realized that it's connected to this week's Torah portion, right? Ooh. Jacob wrestles with the angel, mm-hmm. right? And he, what happens at the end, right? The angel does what? You're, touches you're, his...
0: You're really asking me to draw yeah. on, like, uh, ancient history. It's a
1: history. famous story. The it's angel, story, but he he blesses Jacob, him from Gideon's Bible he last Before week. he blesses him, he, touch, oh, he touches, his, um, he touches his, his hip socket, right? And, and oh, he's injured, and the Midrash talks about... Oh, right, right. I learned and
0: all of this once upon a time.
1: See I have faith in you thank you um, Rabbi. and and the 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 idea of like the hip socket being a place where you remember your weaknesses where you remember mm. your struggles right was like oh cool so this bone now is my like Jacob's my remembrance of Jacob becoming Israel a, a person wow. becoming the parent of, of a nation, and th- that often happens through struggles and weakness, and so um, that's the meaning that I ascribe to this bangle. Um, if you wanted to get a bangle like this, uh, where would I get it, Alana?
0: Well, you can get it at Atelier Lou Bijouterie, which is in Montreal, Quebec, and uh, you can also order it online using the code BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com.
2: Has Atelier Lou thought about expanding across the West to become Lou's Workshop? Ooh, maybe. Oh. Maybe that's like the... Uh,
0: well, they do ship, so you can still get what you need, even if you don't. That's live in like Montreal. The, uh,
1: the Saul's Bagel Basement that uh, was existing in Montreal. And the, the Office de la Langue Française came and said, you have to change your name from Saul's Bagel Basement to something in French. So he changed it to Bagel sous oh. Um <laughs> That's very smart.
0: Honestly, it sounds... I like the alliteration. No,
1: sous Saul. That's the basement in French
0: i know what it means but it sounds good we're all from montreal
1: So I got a confession to make. Uh, I never really trained to be a podcaster. Most of the work that I do, or at least I did before I was launching several other podcasts, including this one, uh, was in adult education. As an adult educator slash rabbi, I was much more focused on content creation, you know, prepare a class, teach a series. My job is to be the person who helps someone understand a new idea. The pandemic, though, made something clear to me, something I'd been thinking about beforehand, but was made much more obvious. Adult education is not about content creation, and neither is podcasting. Both of these and so many other parts of our lives are about building communities. If you don't make a class without thinking about how people can walk out of there, talking to each other about some point they were thinking about and wanting to continue that conversation, then some essential part of that class has failed. And we've been thinking quite a bit about that for Bonjour Chai, because we've built something significant here. And we know that we want to create a space for the conversations that are actually happening. See, that, that's the beauty of a podcast. You don't have to be in the same room at the same time to hear the ideas and to want to discuss them with others. So, you know, we're launching a Slack channel for people to discuss the episodes, and we're on Twitter. But the online world can be a cesspool of trolls and overall bad behavior, and so we reached out to someone who we thought could help us think through this potential mess and see if the upsides could be maximized. Jesse Brown is the founder and host of the Canada Land podcast, which has now expanded to become an entire podcast network. Jesse is a veteran journalist and is seen by many as the leading independent voice in Canadian journalism. Jesse, welcome to Bonjour
3: Hi. Thank you, Rabbi. It's good to be here. Just Avi,
1: please. <laughs> So one of the main reasons I wanted you on to talk about this is because Candleland is a it's a crowdfunded platform and it's essentially a community, in, if you think about that. Few people pay regularly for something that they don't believe in. And while you clearly have your share of detractors, right, the show goes on and it grows. right. So the first question is, how would you ultimately think about engaging with your community without losing your mind and without becoming so anodyne that no one wants to be part
3: of the community anymore? You're starting with a big one. Um, Swing for the fences. I mean, I'll be the... I'll, I'll be that difficult uh, kind of podcast guest that I loathe who like deflates the premise at the beginning, w- which is to say, like, I I just want to examine. I'm not sure I buy uh, the notion of a podcast listenership as a community or a subscription base as a community. Um, I feel I, I, I'm sure I'm plagiarizing someone who, you know, like I. I I came up in media during the early days of social media where it, like it became a big buzzword like oh we have a community the our message board is a community let's have a blog with a community. We live in communities, you know? Like I want I want an audience. I want a listenership. I want um, I want a subscription base and there there is a di- I'll buy the premise to a certain extent. I guess I've just got fuzzy ideas or complicated ideas about this because I think the way that I see it yeah. and I'll
1: push back on you is that when you meet somebody, and you're the only person who you know who listens to Candleland, and you meet somebody else who listens to Candleland, you have this shared language, and that shared language and that shared set of ideas, and you listen not because you hate the person, you're not hate listening to every single week, very few people do that, but when you have that, you automatically have a conversation, it's not deep ties. Right. But there are loose ties that bind the people to listen to Candleland. I remember this happened to me when I was listening to Slate podcasts in the early days and I didn't know anybody else. And you'd meet like somebody and you'd be like, of course, which one's your favorite? And what's this? And what are these ideas? And you know that you have this shared language. And that is, in essence, a community and they don't
3: know each other yet. Until they meet, but that's there. It, it's a something, and it's something interesting, and it's something valuable. Um, and I don't know that we have the best language. A part of this is really new because of techno. Because it, it is a technologically, it, it spans geography. There's a lot of expat Canadians who like what we do and support us. And it's 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 like we have a you know thousands of people, uh, hundreds of thousands of people who listen, and yet. If you walked out on the street in Toronto, not one in a thousand would know who I am or what Canada land is. And if you did wear a Canada land t-shirt, you would quickly meet someone that would attract, you know, like, like through the course of your day, somebody would be like, oh, I listened to that too. And there is a connection and, you know, it's not unique to us. There's lots of weird new ways that humans are kind of organizing and assembling and finding commonality, maybe not community, but something. And the only thing that I can actually draw a parallel to because it is technologically based to overcome these geographic boundaries, political, like they're not really of, of a political stripe either, you know. Uh, I actually find a lot of, I find it interesting to think about it in a Jewish context because I think that finding commonality through shared principles, a diaspora across the world, um, you know, there was a, a financial system that united Jews, a credit there was all these different kind of uh, precedents to um you know f- creating a people that this is really lofty i'm going to be excoriated for this. this is a silly thing to compare B- but but I-, I think about this stuff that there, there 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 was this early way in which people organized and found commonality with each other that had nothing to do with geographic boundaries or political systems necessarily but you know or even necessarily faith um uh, that i find instructive in a lot of ways, right now, as we're redefining how people organize and and connect with each other, I want to hear more about that. What is your vision? <laughs> it's it's not even like a thesis or a vision. It's it's like just like an idea that I'm playing with at the risk of just sounding like ridiculously grand, like ridiculously comically, um, you know. I don't know, self-important or grandiose. It's not something that I think we've done anything particularly special. Um, I, I guess it's just like how do people uh, form? Organize and form teams with each other, and and you know I think that I have like there is a a a practical physical sense of community. You know the people who you who you live amongst, and it's it's about your kids going to the same school. It's about having a shared interest in the same park. It's about caring about if there's a pothole or a speed bump, Um, and and caring about the people in your community, caring about your neighbor, and a certain way in which why do I have concern for somebody um who you know because they live three doors down from me like there's 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 lots of people who don't live close to me who and there there is something essential and human about like no we 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 take care of our own and we should and 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 we're in danger of losing those connections and at the same time i think that most people are uh probably members of like four dozen different communities now they've got some hobby online that they're connecting with people on and, um, you know, and maybe if you are a Jew, your 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 Jewish community is not geographically located. And then you've got these things like a podcast you listen to, which can sound like a very trivial point of, of, of uh, community or communion or connection. And yet it does speak to some, I think, higher principles, which aren't about like the podcast necessarily. But like if Canadians are frustrated that there isn't good journalism in Canada, here's something you can do. And here are people who feel the same way as you. If you feel like there are things that no one's talking about that they need to, here are some imperfect people who uh, are going to try to fill in that gap, and you can fund them. And we're not the kind of internet community where we have like a vibrant subreddit or, you know, commenter space. There isn't really, maybe there should be, but there isn't really a space where Canada Land listeners get together. I almost feel like it's an attribute that, you know, they... They don't all... It's a feature and not a bug. Maybe, maybe. I'm sorry, this is all very messy. No, we love it.
1: But I I actually... Look, I think that the parallels between... With, with what you're saying with the Jewish community and the podcasting or thinking about it as podcasting uh, as a community or not, um, run a lot deeper than you think that they do. Um, the only thing is, is that as a Jewish community now, this deep community that you talk about doesn't really exist anymore, right? That used to exist right, when you had your own system of um, of economics, of trading, and you were living in these shtetls or in these small towns in North Africa or wherever you were. Nowadays, we do live as a Jewish community with loose ties, right? And I hate to, I'm sorry, I've been dying to say this. Let's talk shit about the Jews right now. The Jewish community fundamentally exists based on loose ties, because we don't see each other and recognize each other in the street anymore. And when you do meet somebody, you have that connection, but you're not always thinking about it. And it's not an essential part that is the same way that a neighborhood is about of most people's Jewish lives. And yet the Jewish community still functions as if they are 100 years old. Right. So the same way that we think that print media maybe needs to, like, go away, we need to start rethinking the major structures of the Jewish community because we're more centered around these loose ties and around the 20 Jews that think like us instead of the, you know, 85,000 Jews in Montreal that don't necessarily think like us. But
3: it me. is the thinking that unites. I mean, and, and to me, that is that speaks to the 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 reason why yeah. I self-identify as a Jew. It's not because I worship the same God as a Jew in Montreal or, or uh, you know, in Israel or... In Africa, uh, it, it, it's because there is a connection that is based on a, an intellectual tradition, and and I think a uh, a sure. way of thinking, a it's way of criticism. Uh, 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 it's not it's not even language for like you know. I think there was a time when I don't mean I don't mean
1: words. I mean shared set of yeah. you know,
3: thinking and stuff like that. That's right. Which you know uh, encompasses. Printful quite a lot of uh, division and debate uh, almost by definition. Yeah. But, but, and yet it's it, it's a cl- it clicks and, and you understand it very quickly. You know? Right.
0: So then what happens when you place all of those Jews into a social media chamber, let's say, because you see a, a lot of times, and I have a lot of problem with this, and I know for myself, I've had to actually exit off certain Facebook groups that I'm on that were like Jewish type groups because it was a lot of people like complaining and attacking each other. And just like the online forum can get really heated in a way that is disturbing. Um, What do we do about that? Because you're saying that you don't really believe in this idea of creating, let's say, online communities for a podcast or in general. I don't know. You can expand on that. I don't want to put words into your mouth. Um, It inevitably happens. um, And you see it all the time um, in the Jewish community, out of the Jewish community. Like, what do we, how do we navigate that? What do you do when people start getting into these brawls? Any thoughts? Can I ask you a
3: question? in yeah. response to your question how many of those divisive uh flameouts occurred over the issue of israel oh yeah I'm percentage sure wise many. R- roughly probably
0: probably 90% if not more yeah
3: so if we're describing a, a system of thought and connection and, and perhaps community that exists uh outside of the usual like you know geographic physicality of community maybe there's something to be learned from the fact that it is discussion of geography that, it, you know, that is the bumping point, which seems to be toxic to Very healthy communities that, that it is this issue of land that seems to almost be an anathema to the ways in which we want to relate to each other. And, and it it's actually heartbreaking how unJewish it is to me when things flame out into these bad faith, Accusations, you know, rhetoric where we're not interested in each other's brains anymore. We're not interested in each other, right. well, you know, like because hearing we're different on teams. perspectives. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like dividing the community. I totally agree. David, I feel like you have a thought.
2: Well, I have a thought because we're talking about all the positive attributes of bringing, you know, the Jewish community together or any type of community together. But these are some of the downsides that can really tear down communities from within and from outside with social media. I was curious, Jesse, if, you know, what are these? Are the downsides?
3: Are there any ways to avoid these kind of pitfalls in trying to build an online community together? Uh, you know, again, like I don't wake up in the morning saying, "How can I build community today with my podcast?" I wake up in the morning, uh, like I, 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 I provide a service. I have a function, and somehow something grows around that. And I guess to, uh, this is not to negate your question. I guess this is by way of answering your question. Uh, I think that if I was trying to do that, it wouldn't work. Uh, i I think that what brings people together around me and my team is is that we, we we do this thing for people and it corrects towards you know we're here to give you information we're here to give you analysis and and we can go deeper into what makes that work well. I think that I think it works well when we are doing our jobs well and we're providing facts and analysis and I think it works well um, when we're transparent. I think it works poorly when we, uh, lose sight of that service and are instead like really trying to win a point or really trying to carry a flag for something or other. and and uh, we can kind of course correct that when we say, all right, um, I got that fact wrong or you know what? my analysis was not was not accurate there. Uh, and, and and we kind of like set the terms for discussion. Uh, I don't know, I say at the end of every podcast, I used to say, you know, send me an email. I read everything that you send, and I respond to every email. That's what I said at the beginning. And very quickly, that became a full-time job, responding to every email. And that was, I think, when I was like, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm answerable to you, and maybe there is some, like, this is a two-way, I'm not just talking in your ear. We're talking to each other. And then that message became, uh, send me an email, I read everything you send, and I respond when I can. And then I was not responding to most of them because I was too busy actually doing what my job is, which is the podcast and the journalism. And now I just say, uh, send me an email. I read everything you send. And that's still true. But there will become a point where that's no longer true. <laughs> you know, I don't want to pretend that we're all, you know, we, we talk a lot about parasocial relationships with various Internet, you know, personalities. A lot of people feel like they know me because they because they and I. it's an incredible privilege. They welcome me into their ears, into their homes, into their commute as they walk their dogs. And I, I give a lot of kind of personal, more than most journalists, I talk about myself in personal terms. So people feel like they know me, but it's not, I'm not your buddy. If you're a podcast listener, we don't have a dialogue going back and forth. Uh, we do have a relationship. You know, if you fund us, you you know, you've hired me to do a job for you, to be accountable to you. Sometimes I talk to you directly, but that's not actually my job.
1: I, I think that one of the hallmarks though, of what you do do, and you you said this, but just to like, if, if, if I'm, to reiterate it and see if I'm I'm going the right way the right. If I'm going in the right direction is that you're not afraid of bringing on an opinion that you can learn from that you strongly disagree with at the beginning and either your your opinion is going to be accepted or your your opinion is going to be changed or it's not but it's not as a result of you being entrenched in your idea before you even start an episode and that is if we go back to that issue with the online communities and the toxic geography um, often what happens is is that we exclude these people before we even start now the thing that 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 I've always noticed is that the people that are part of the establishment are often the ones, and this to me is shocking, and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, um, the people that are on the establishment side that for the most part are arguing for a certain slice of geography, um, you know, and a bigger slice of geography than other people, um, are the first ones that will go and kick people out for an incorrect view. And the people with the, quote unquote, incorrect view are not necessarily the ones that go and say, right, you are wrong and I don't want you as part of my community. They're the ones that are talking, right? And to be concrete about it, you don't see people that are involved in the BDS movement going and saying, we don't want to talk to Zionists, right? We think that they're horrible and evil and we don't even want to have anything to do with them, right? There are so many more opportunities for dialogue coming from the left than coming from the right. Um, And the right, for lack of a better way of framing it, tends to be the establishment and as our guest last week who was saying some pretty incendiary things have nothing, having nothing to do with geography but anatomy, uh, you, we can't afford to lose Jews. Why are we kicking people out for an idea which is now reaching a plurality of the community and will soon surpass and become a majority where the minority is still controlling this position?
0: I'm going to push back a little bit on that one of those comments is that I have felt a lot of toxicity on the left just as much as the right in very different ways. And I think at this point, our listeners know that I am a left-leaning individual and it's hard to be in certain environments because I don't think people want to hear the perspective of a Jew that doesn't absolutely hate Israel at all costs. That's a whole other conversation. But I just, I just wanted to openly say that. No, this is
3: the conversation and, and um, it is happening. We navigate this every day professionally. But I, I, but we have to also recognize that we navigate this personally and privately, and it's uh, these are harsh times. And forgive me again. I'm just going to kind of like just try to, like, <laughs> extemporaneously, uh, you know, sketch this out. Podcasting is a shtetl. Uh, that is, uh, it's wonderful that there's a podcasting boom. Um, it's wonderful to see podcasting grow. Um, but it is absolutely uh, a minority space from the the mainstream tendencies uh a place that only works if you actually listen to the other person it only works if you if you enter into a conversation with the possibility that you might learn something or you might be changed the worst podcast i can imagine is here's the guy who's always right join him every week as he tells you all of his things that are right uh there might be a fascinating person with some great ideas and and once i've listened to three episodes i'm done i don't need to hear him be right every time And so to actually have 30 minutes, an hour, to discuss something is like, that's manna from heaven right now. That doesn't, like everything else is just algorithmically pushing people into opposite corners of of a deathmatch boxing ring. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm conflating analogies. Uh, Are there deathmatch boxing rings? Maybe there are. There should be. But everything is encouraging us to to, to pick a side and attack the other side. And uh, I feel like, you know, really lucky to be in a space that is like built to do something different. I I uh to the other thing you're discussing about the the right versus the left we are constantly a lot of people just feel like Canada is just leftist and then it, it was hilarious because Jacobin magazine the socialist magazine wrote a very glowing profile of Canada land and they were excoriated by people that like you think Canada land is left that's the best you could do they're not left at all they're not social we're not we're, we're you know I I I. I I feel like the show suffers when I speak to people who only agree with each other. And yet we're constantly trying to figure out there are live and active issues around, is this an opinion that we want to platform? Is this an idea that deserves more space? Uh, is this like really what we're trying to carve out and the shtetl is the shtetl of good faith and it's getting smaller and smaller and, and, and uh, where people actually are in good faith in conversation. And when I say that this is you know, both professional and personal, I, I, I have every Jew is experiencing this. It's not you know, the left versus the right. i I, I had a, a a beloved family member who went to his grave uh, refusing to speak to me because he considered me in his in his later years an enemy of the Jews. Wow. Oof. right. But this is not an a, 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 an uncommon story. Everyone is, is is trying to find this space.
2: So Jesse, as you could see sort of between the tussle between Alana and Avi, what I'm curious is how, how do you get to decide who becomes the gatekeeper in the social media? Who gets to control the speech that sort of comes in or the speech that doesn't?
3: The, the foundational, during those optimistic days of early internet, before we even talked about social media, we were in love with this idea that finally the people, finally we all would gatekeep that. The gatekeepers were gone. And... Uh, As somebody who spent the, you know, an upbringing, you know, feeling like, wow, there are like three people deciding what I consume in media and then an early career knocking on the doors of those gatekeepers, may I speak? Can I have a little space to say something? I was one of the most optimistic people that like, you know, and also coming from like certain kind of subculture, both hip hop and punk rock and like carving out DIY space to say things or independent space to say things or not having to ask permission to say things. And then there was the Internet where it was not about gatekeeping. And we, we all were very naive and, and optimistic uh, in those days about what that would mean. Uh, this is what it actually means. What we're getting now is what it means, and I don't think that it's negative necessarily. I think I would rather have this really cacophonous and sometimes violent, constant negotiation uh, about who gets to determine what, and 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 for it to be based on popular consensus, as dangerous as that, as history has shown us that that is, than for that to be tightly controlled by corporate, you know, or government interests. Why is Canada land? a node, why is Canada Land a gatekeeper of who gets to talk or who doesn't? Everybody is a gatekeeper of who gets to talk. You're, you're deciding that I'm on your podcast. Everybody decides who to retweet. Uh, but some people have more influence than others because more people follow them. And I can start a podcast just like anybody else can start a podcast. If Canada Land is a powerful space or an influential space or, or not, you know, there's many bigger ones, it's only in relation to what people have made it into whether they're a community or otherwise it's just it's just because people listen to what we have to say more than some and less than others
1: it's interesting you bring that up there was um tim ferris who is one of the few very 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 large podcasts that i listened to he had a four-hour podcast this week and one of the guests on there uh pointed out that uh, one person's doxing is another person's investigative journalism and it just depends who's the one doing it Right. And so Canada Land, by dint of the fact that it is, you know, risen to the top and enough people pay attention to it, essentially is doing a form of and I don't have a problem with it. I think what you're doing is wonderful. For example, in this case, one is, is doing a form of doxing on the Kielbergers that is basically, you know, saying that this is wrong. But if an individual went and did that, right, you'd get in all sorts of shit. And so at the end of the day, um, the... I th- the, so, the internet and the social responsibility, I'm not going to get into responsibilities, but uh, maybe I will or maybe I should because ultimately that to me is where it comes to, right? That's where I was trying to go to with this is that where we are now is that everybody feels that they have rights online and nobody feels like they have any sort of responsibilities, right? Especially once you are hiding behind a mask of an anonymous, you know, shit poster name. And that's where the things fall apart. David, who is famous in our little bonjour chai world internally, it doesn't come out back it stays kind of the backstage but I'm going to put him out there he thinks that we should have gatekeepers for the whole CBC, (laughs) right? He thinks that you know for all the internet, you don't belong on the internet if you don't have a thing I do. if you don't have something important to say or something valuable to say and there should be a gatekeeper that will decide that and I called. I'm going to you know that is wrong but at the end of the day the the only check that we have in day to day society is that we have responsibilities and the anti-semitism and the anti uh the pro-zionism anti-zionism whatever all of that tends to happen online simply because so many of us are hiding behind some sort of a screen and some sort of a screen name And, and so the Creating that shift is where, you know, figuring out where that's going to work. I think that's the next phase of the, of the internet. I do really believe that we are still very much in the early stages of figuring out how the internet life is going to work. Uh, we're not even close to figuring out what's happening. And sorry for my rant, but, um, you know, why do you get to investigative journalists something whereas other people doxing things are, are horrible? And that's, that's really a fundamental question
2: done. And before Jesse responds, I feel I just need to push back against Avi right now to sort of say, I actually think the social media echo chamber has created a lot of disharmony in our society, both in the Jewish community, but also outside. And yeah, I'm beginning more and more to believe that we need some guardrails. We need bigger gatekeepers to sort of say, Not everyone needs to have an opinion on social media all the time. And for the well-being of our society, I don't even think that we need everyone to have a say in everything all the time, building upon each other. I think this is going to be to the detriment of our society and could tear us down as a
3: civilization. And that's the hot take. Well, be careful what you ask for. I mean, you know, Leonard Cohen saw the future. There'll be a breaking of the ancient Western code. Your private life will suddenly explode. So that's happened. Um... What to, to 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 the the question about responsibility and who's 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 a doxer, who's a troll and who's a journalist and what are our responsibilities? Boy, does it change uh, and shift fast. Uh, and you know, when we started, we were looked at with like curiosity and skepticism. We were, you know, it, to to be talking about the private sex life of of um, such an establishment figure as Jan Gomeshi, Like this is not what we do. We have a code. In Canada, we we leave those things alone, right? That was uh, that was not fair territory to a lot of people. Uh, we crossed a line. Who this isn't journalism? You know that was the the criticism, uh, and you fast forward, and that was before me too. Uh, you know, at least before that exploded as as the hashtag under the Weinstein case, uh, and now we have moved things to say, you know what? We've had a conversation. And there are aspects of things that happen uh, in people's bedrooms that need to be talked about. And, you know, establishment media does the same type of story all the time. Um, now, I feel like old guard in that I, I, I uh, practice journalism in a pretty traditional way, where if we're going to, I don't really care if you call it doxing or exposing or what you call it, if we're going to publish things that were unknown about people, we go through a pretty classic system of verification and giving the other side a chance to respond. And, uh, you know, you talk about responsibility. These are basically the responsibilities of a journalist and they're not governed by, by the government or by law. They're not really, you know, governed by any professional body that you have to be, get a license from. They're just sort of like, you know, not even profession there. It's a trade. And, and we, you know, if you call yourself a journalist, you probably should ascribe to these notions. And I'm, the one who's saying like, no, 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 this this random doxing on Twitter was not the way to do this. This random accusation or, or just this, uh, you know, you didn't give the other chance a chance to uh, to explain or you haven't actually checked your facts because now everybody has the same tools that we did. And so, I you know, we need to have more responsibility before you, you know, before you emit these these very serious accusations you need to do to do journalism. Um, and we're all under, you know, legally, we're all under the same rubric of of libel and defamation law, whether you're a journalist or just a private individual, it doesn't matter. Um, so what what's happening now is I think what happens whenever a new form of mass communication comes out. I mean, Nazism and the rise of fascism came uh, as industrialized media, mass media. Uh, we had this new tool and and it was so powerful and the ability to just convince people en masse of lunatic ideas um, through propaganda. Was a new tool in in humanity's hands, and uh, it was abused and 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 to horrific effect. So uh, now we have this other tool, and what are we going to do with it? So David, you know, everyone's terrified. Uh, not uh, uh, we need controls. We, you know, people are not acting responsibly. We need rules. Everybody kind of agrees with that, but the the crucial point is, who is going to make those decisions? Who gets to decide who gets to speak, who gets to have an opinion. And, and we can leave that in the hands of government and mass media, or maybe there are tools in civil society. And, and we, there's such an emphasis right now on shaming people. Shame is a tool that we have amongst each other. It's there's no, like you're not shamed by government decree, uh, like there are social controls that we impose upon people when they're in bad faith. And that's when they're supposed to be used They and shame can be abused as well. But there's reasons why people conduct themselves the way that they do, because we hold ourselves responsible to one another and what is right. shameful and what is not is always being negotiated. So we are in the midst of a violent, constant renegotiation and some of it is so long overdue shame over racism and shame over sexual uh, predation and abuse and, and, casual homophobia, casual language that was a horrible, you know, recognition of truths that people live, that everybody was conspiring to gaslight them about. all of this language that people hate of of associated with woke, left. Uh, it's long overdue that we that we developed a language for this. Um, and, and, and yet like we're just constantly trying like're we're, we're constantly negotiating who gets to talk and 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 I, I as a communicator, as a journalist, and as a Jew, I have the same reflexive distaste for lines of argument that don't deal with the content, but basically say, I don't want to hear from you. You're mansplaining. Yeah. You're mansplaining. So I don't, you know, you can't tell me, you know, I'm I'm not trying to hear this. Uh, There's all kinds of, because of who you are, you don't get to talk. Um, I have a reflexive, uh, you know, antipathy towards that position. And yet, like, there is something that I need to be open to when people are saying there are power dynamics about who gets to talk and who has traditionally got gotten to speak, and that matters too. Uh, so it's hard to stay open. It's hard to listen and and to negotiate in good faith and not draw up, you know, pull up your drawbridge and and, and build a moat. But that's the challenge of the time, and I'm not running to government uh, or to Facebook's policies to say, save me, I, because I, I, I feel like that's that's more dangerous.
1: I don't think Facebook's saving anyone. You know, I, I I, will bring this up as a rabbi, right? I do think about the fact that we have all of these rights as individuals and they're always, as you just pointed out, and as Jews, we think this about this very, very strongly, these responsibilities that we feel towards each other, right? And these responsibilities are often underlined and entrenched, whether you're in a Jewish community and you have this spoken to you about, whether you're in Jewish day school or by the community, or whether you're a journalist and you know that you're being bound by a you know a set of ethics a set of journalistic principles that tell you when doxing is appropriate to use that term and it becomes investigative journalism and when it's not appropriate because it doesn't really affect society and it's wrong to just go ahead and do this so if i can then wrap it all up and then ask you right it's you're you get to make a mitzvah right now right? And you're going to go and say, what is the responsibility? If there's one thing you've learned as a journalist that helps you separate that and say, give you that responsibility that citizens need to know when they go online or when they talk in public, what would that one thing be to help us all move forward and say, if I can keep that in mind, right, and journalists do this well, I should do this well also because it gives me a good set of responsibilities. What would that be?
3: It would be to get in the room with the person that you're talking to, and if you can't be in the room with them, imagine that they're in the room with you. The, the things that people, you know, the Jordan Peterson crusades to be able to say that he wants to, he wants to be able to, to somebody says, I am a, a man and I want to be referred to as a man. And he says, well, I will probably accommodate that request. He says on, on his podcast, but I don't want to be forced to accommodate that request. Why don't you just think about it from the first place? Which is, if that person was in front of you, you would accommodate that request. Why would you call somebody by a by, by a designation? Why, why would you deny somebody what they say? You know, if you if you apply that principle to every interaction, you know, if that person was in the room with me, would I make this comment on Facebook on Twitter? If they were here right now, would I refer to them this way? if they were in the room, if they were breaking bread with me, if I was having a conversation. So I have been so sad during the pandemic that we, you know, we've been so lucky that we've been able to keep working as podcasters. It's easier than TV. It's easier than a lot of things, but I'm sitting in a studio right now where I used to host. And I take that role seriously. I hosted people who sat here with me and it limits your ability to dehumanize someone if they're sitting across the table from you. So now we speak like this over these interfaces and it's a pretty good, you know, approximation. And and I'm going to be more civil than if I was writing a Twitter thread excoriating you for something I disagree with you about Uh, because you're right here uh, on a screen next to me but i think that you can apply that to every situation what if they were he- would i say this if they were here right now
0: i love that
1: my wife is a my wife is the first orthodox woman to be serving as a clergy full time in a synagogue in canada and the amount of vitriol that she gets that gets diffused so easily by her saying just say that to me face to face right come meet me and tell me that i'm such an evil person is you know is exactly what you're saying um we have we're starting a slack channel because we want people to have those conversations we want to use real names in there but you're 100 right that it's not the same thing so i guess stay tuned for our live events and uh you know we want to be we do want to be having these conversations with people wherever and however possible thank you jesse uh so much for being part of this i do hope we speak again soon i hope that we can host each other potentially at some point in the future in person for a future podcast episode. Um, And uh, I guess to listen to any of your podcasts, uh, go to CanadaLand.com. You're on Twitter at uh, at Jesse Brown. It's not a community. You just say things. And uh, we at Bonjour Chai would love to hear you, uh, hear your thoughts on our Twitter at Bonjour Chai. And uh, email us at Bonjour at the CJN.ca. And you can request to join this brand new Slack chat.
3: Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you all. Thank you so much.
1: So before we get to our book club, our first order of business is to announce the winner of last week's book club book. Esther Clemens is now the proud owner of Gideon's Bible by Rick and Gideon Salutin. We will be in touch to arrange delivery. You can email us this week at bonjour at the cjn.ca to be entered in and possibly win this week's book.
2: Mazel tov.
1: Uh, Alana couldn't join us for the book club segment, but she will be back for Nachas and the close. So to say that Gary Barwin is an author serves only to vastly minimize the sheer output and variety of art that he creates. Novelist, poet, musician, and composer, visual artist, Barwin has done it all and apparently done it well. He has won the Leacock Medal. He has been shortlisted for the Giller Prize. His latest novel, entitled Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted, The Ballad of Muttle the Cowboy, came out this year through Random House Canada and is the subject of our third book review in our BCBC series. David, what do you think of the book?
2: So... I found it had a very appealing beginning and ending as well, too. It's sort of the middle where it went off the rails for me. And I should probably all preface this by saying I have a bit of an issue when it comes to Holocaust books. Um, they make me feel very numb, especially after, you know, 12 years of Jewish education where we got it every single year. So anytime I pick up a Holocaust novel or book or story, I feel very shut down. Um, so that was my trouble getting into it itself. I, I found it difficult to get into, especially with, you know, uh, the clever asides and the puns, I thought it distracted from the main flow of the story.
1: Yeah. Um, look, I, uh, I think that there are sentences, there are paragraphs, there are books, there are chapters, and then there are books. I think at the sentence level, this book worked so well. You can tell that this person is a poet. This person has so many you know, ideas bouncing around in his head. Right for literary allusions, for literary alliterations, all this stuff, and it's just being poured out onto the page um, because there is—it's—it's a cascade, it's a non-stop, you know, waterfall of all of these, you know, literary maneuvers, and it just felt amazing at the sentence level to be able to read that. I found that while the trees are were magnificent, I found that they didn't quite amount to a forest at large. Um, I was glad that the first ten or fifteen pages of this insane amount of literary uh, alliteration died down after a bit and became a more classic, you know, novel sort of format and and, an idea. Um, But I don't know. I just um, I I can see the the strengths in there. I can I can see the beauty. I as you had a harder time and I think part of it is because not so much because I'm numb to holocaust fiction or whatever I although I may be although that wasn't the piece that really got to me or didn't get to me it was much more that you know as I've mentioned in the past on the show when uh, if 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 there's no real plot that is going to be interesting to me in any real way I don't care how literary or how beautiful it is I'm not interested I'm not being kept as propelled forward just by the wordplay and just by the interest of what's going on and i felt that that was happening and in this case it was basically just oh let's see what can happen if we mash up western novel with holocaust novel right and put them together
2: right so yeah i think i agree with that as well too where it's like if the main characters muddle and esther if they had a bit more breathing space or time i felt they could have been developed more as the characters itself it always felt like they were jumping around from one thing to the next without getting to know them a bit. And it was only, and I I don't think this is spoiler alerts, it's only at the end where I saw a bit more of that that I really wanted to see uh, more of the characters. Take a step back. Describe,
1: if you want, like, give us a summary of what's going on here
2: in this book. In this book, it sort of starts where Motul... The top level. The top level. Motul is a young man who goes... He's hired, uh, I believe, by the communists in Russia to go and try to assassinate the bourgeois. Uh, As he's there his testicles get shot off by a true historical figure. Then we flash forward 20 years into 1941. The, the Nazis are on the rise and they're crossing. They've I've just broken the pact with Russia. They're entering Lithuania and his family is on the run. And it goes from his story of trying to escape with his mother as they try to survive constantly by hiding out in different farms. And Motol has always had this fascination with cowboys. And he's always wanted to be a cowboy but what happens in the book is he starts to sort of see parallels between the nazis as cowboys and himself as he describes as an indian and then he starts to sort of make these connections between what it must have been like for the first nations in north america particularly canada as they were being wiped away by the growing expansion of colonialism and he starts to have a shift in focus of wait am i a cowboy or am i an indian sure that's uh
1: that's good so the and and throughout the style of being so staccato right is they are designed to like echo the fact that like you're in war and you don't know what's going on and things are always happening and people are always dying and so in that sense the book really echoed and created this space and this milieu right in in such a great way um i didn't even mind so many like the first time or the first three times that it happened where there was like an anachronism where there was like something like they're not drinking beer bottles in brown beer like not they're brown beer out of brown beer bottles in you know in Eastern Europe in the 1940s I, I really don't think that that's happened and I was like oh that doesn't matter right it's not about that or the when when wordplay comes up or he says something right you um, in, in using some sort of a literary reference that would only make sense in you know the year 2000 or beyond right again didn't matter didn't make didn't matter to me because that was part of that highly stylized you know thing that at some point the modern idioms Don't matter anymore. It's like fine. I get that what you're trying to do. Um, I think that it's really like objectively, I saw it as like a. I could see what where the art was with this. And he is. I mean, I, I went on his website. Such great, like, so much poetry, um, so much musical relationships, right? A lot of stuff along those lines, teaching so much. This guy was prolific. And he was a visual artist. And he was putting out these... The, he put out this series that I thought was really cool of different, like, bet in different order. And if you're listening to this, Gary Barwin, I will email you. I want one of those prints. I, I'm going to pay for one of those. They're, they're beautiful. They were nice. I, I just... Maybe it's just I'm not the right audience for it or or you, um, but the like the leap required to read something purely literary for the sake of like the literariness of it all um, was a little bit lost on me. Um, And and yeah, I, uh, you know, I saw the humor. I saw the art. I saw all of these things. It didn't gel together. And I suspect that it was on me and not necessarily on the artist himself on the on the author.
2: So then who? who might be the right
1: audience for this particular book? I don't know, English lit majors that uh, like the Holocaust or that, right? It, like the the idea of like, it's let's see how good we can do this genre or how well we can pay homage to this genre of Westerns while also doing something which is deeply Jewish. There was a lot of Jewish moments in there. Um, I, I don't know if I, you know, there's a lot of Kaddishes. There was a lot of, like, you know, Jewish... Yuskidals yeah, yuskidals. A, a lot of uh, ritual, you know, moments and stuff like that. And Not just ritual, but, like, thoughts. And I, I liked it. It was nice. It was good. Who is it for? Somebody yeah. who... Um, somebody who tends to read a lot of literary fiction, I guess, maybe, I don't know. Um, it's definitely not. If you gave this to somebody who looks at genre fiction, or, you know, thrillers, or, you know, anything, you know, Dan Brown, or uh, Tom Clancy, or sci-fi, or whatever it is, I, I don't think that those people would even think to pick this up, even if they think, oh, good, it's a Holocaust novel, I, I'm Jewish, I should read it. Um, I don't think that was for them and I'm while I'm not entirely in that world I don't read genre fiction I don't read thrillers or, or things along those lines capers and I'm not entirely in that literary world of like r- making sure that I read every list every book on the short list of the Booker Prize and every short list of the book and the Giller Prizes and getting all of these you know out there into my you know into me um that uh, I can easily see this as like appealing to somebody like that um, in that way.
2: And I'm really curious what you thought about the parallels between the cowboys, the Nazis, the indigenous people of Canada. And as he as he makes the connection between the Jews that came up again and again, it's a very Canadian focused book. So I wanted to know what you thought of those moments.
1: So uh, Robert Alter, who is uh, he was a a literary scholar who then became a biblical scholar because he started translating the Bible. Right, he was asked to translate one book and then uh, did another and did another and then he started writing a book about the art of like Bible, what's going on in the Bible and then he's written another. And that now, but last year he finished the entire uh, translation of the Tanakh which, and then he wrote a book called The Art of Biblical Translation. But he, one of his early books he talks about in the art of biblical narrative, he talks about like Bible type scenes and you wonder why, you know, uh, there's women at the well feeding their camels all the time. And you wonder why this story or that story, the other. And there are several times in the Bible where so many of these stories show up again and again. He says these are type scenes. These are designed to evoke a larger piece. Cowboys and Indians, Nazis and Jews, any sort of good guy, bad guy sort of dynamic. That's a type scene. That is a classic literary trope. Um, And by putting those two together and then adding in the Canadian element at the end um, or towards the middle, towards the end, you know, really is designed to, you know, underscore this and give this, a, it's not quite a morality play, but he's definitely wanting you to think about bigger questions, which I think a good novel can, and it's not just, you know, escapism where you read something and you're done with it, right? I like that he is trying to make a point, and he's not pandering to it, and he's not beating people over the head with this, like, message, right? It is nuance and it's, it's, it's thoughtful. I like that. Like I said, there's a lot of pieces that I liked in the novel that... Um, v- it just like I said, it didn't necessarily stick the landing, but part of it may be because I didn't, it, it wasn't for me and I wasn't that guy to, to get into it or to understand it in that way. Um, what was your final assessment of it?
2: it it's pretty similar in, se- in your view too. I, I enjoyed it. I, f- I did find a lot of the opportunities we could have seen more of Motul and Esther, especially in the last section where it does take place in Canada. I wanted to see more of those dynamics and relationships. Um, I had a good time reading it, but it did not wow me. It's not a, I wasn't turning each page wanting to find out how it went. So it was fine. It was a nice, enjoyable read. Again,
1: the book is called Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted, The Battle of Muttle the Cowboy by Gary Barwin. And if you want to win a copy of it, uh, simply email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca and ask to be entered. And,
0: And frankly, there's nothing so unusual about being a Jewish cowboy.
1: wisdom this week comes to us from Rabbi Carrie Brown, assistant rabbi at Temple Shalom in Vancouver, B.C.
4: So we've been dealing a lot with the flooding that's been just taking over all of B.C. this week. It's really devastating. And uh, it's these images that are coming out are really um, unbelievable in some ways. And, and there was one video that I've been seeing a lot in the past few days about Um, in Abbotsford, which is a community just a little bit east of Vancouver uh, in in kind of the plains where there uh, is great farmland um, that all of the farmers have been trying to rescue their cows from the floods. And in doing so, they've had to get very creative about pulling them behind jet skis and placing calves on boats and um, doing whatever they could to get their cows out of danger. I, I was just struck sometimes when you open the Torah and you read the Parasha, you think, wow, this was written actually for this very moment in our lives. And there's this really beautiful uh, description as in this moment when when Jacob and Esau are reuniting, and Jacob does this thing, of course, where he, he divides up his family. He has part of his family with, with Leah and part of the family with, with Rachel, and they go their separate, they're supposed to go these separate ways. And and Esau says, oh, let's, let's go together, and I'm going to walk at your pace. And Jacob says, no, we can't do that. And he says, we can't do that because the flocks and the herds and the children can't go at that pace. And Esau says, no, no, it's okay. Well, I'll stick together. And, and Jacob says, no, no, we have to go at our own pace because if we don't, they're going to die. And I think there's such a powerful lesson in, in this little, you know, strange part of the parasha that we usually skip over about what it means to actually keep up at the pace, not that, that others want us to go, but at the pace of what the animals and the children, the future of our community really need. And in fact, it's actually from that that Jacob eventually goes his own way. The next thing we read is that Jacob settles in the land and, and Jacob, uh, he, he makes stalls for his cattle and he settles and in, in builds a house. Um, and, and I think that in this time when we're really dealing with all of these climate catastrophes, maybe the earth is telling us to slow down and go at the pace of what the, what the animals need, what nature needs and what our future need, the children that are before us. So let's keep listening to those things to help us uh, do what we need to do to help make the planet healthier.
1: And now we're at the point in our show where we talk about our nachas of the week. the Something that gets us or got us through the week um, that is uh, feeling, makes us feel good and gives us a good vibe. Alana, what's your nachas of the week?
0: I have a fun one this week and it came to me in my sleep. I woke up and I was like, I have a nachas. Um, so last night, first off, not even in a Jewish context, I went to my first concert of the pandemic. It was crazy. To, everyone was masked. It was at the Danforth Music Hall um, in Toronto. Um, but like there was like a crowd of people and like a live band that came in from New York and it was amazing. Um, the ba- Which band, was so that? the band is called Lawrence. Um, Wikipedia calls them a soul pop slash funk slash R and B band. They're a brother, sister duo. And I went there with my boyfriend and at one point at, so, uh, The band, uh, is made up of, like, a bunch of different people, but the main two singers are, uh, Clyde and Gracie Lawrence, who are siblings, and Clyde was wearing a Seinfeld shirt and had, like, curly hair, and at one point he, like, mentioned something about a bar mitzvah, and my boyfriend's like, are they Jewish? And I was like, no, 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 I'm pretty sure I looked this up, like, a year ago, and I thought that they were too, but they're not. And he's like, are you sure? And, like, just as the show went on, it, like, they have, like, a saxophone player whose name is Jordan Cohen, and I was like, well, that guy's definitely Jewish. Um... All to say, after the show ended and I, I retrieved my phone, um, I looked it up and it turns out that they are. And so I was like, this is a Jewish nachos. I have. I, I went to a, a concert last night and honestly, they're amazing. Uh, I highly recommend checking them out. They're on tour uh, for another while. Um, yeah, if you like a good uh, rollicking uh, funk tune with lots of sax and amazing vocals, like the two of them have killer voices, I highly recommend.
2: Amazing. David, what's your nachos? It goes to Alberta Education Minister Ariana Lagrange. Uh, she was very courageous in her stance that finally in 2021 she said no, niet, nein, to encouraging students to look to the benefits of Nazi-era German economic policy when teaching about war atrocities. I don't think we need to bring up the fact that the document uh, was published in January of 2020 by the minister, when, she, when Minister Lagrange was still in charge of the education portfolio.
1: Amazing. Um, I'm going to tell you a story for my nachos. Um, many, many, many years ago, uh, I went to see uh, Great Big Sea in concert. Are you guys Great Big Sea fans? I don't even no? know what that is. D- what? Great Who? Big sea? Great Big Sea? You never heard of Great Big Sea? No. Oh, they were huge. When were for they around? In the 80s? <sighs> Oh <laughs> my God, my God. I know, I know. I'm going to have a Yurtzeit plaque up soon. That's how old you think I am. but <laughs> You know, I think about the Yurtzeit dark. plaques, right? I'll say that in, uh, the, uh, in, in the Jewish Godfather, right? You know, in the Godfather, the, the, the guy knows he's about to die because their horse's head is in... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the, yeah. So in the Jewish Godfather movies, right, you show up to shul and there's a Yurtzeit <laughs> plaque with your name on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And you're like, oh, <laughs> my time is up um no I, great big sea was a very big band from the uh, from newfoundland uh they did a lot of uh, traditional pop uh folk if you if you if you like the music of come from away you will absolutely Ooh. love the music of great big sea um, I do it love is music that from come from very away. east coast music um their lead singer was this guy alan doyle they were huge in canada they would sell out um arenas um for a quite a while they i don't think they officially ever broke up but they are on a extended hiatus now but years and years ago i went to a secret Bixie, and it turns out that after the show i went to hurley's irish pub which is where i would go anyways all the time and they showed up and i got to talking to the lead singer his name is alan doyle um we were just chatting and uh you know, I was in rabbinical school at the time and uh, he was telling me, oh, you're like half a rabbi. And I'm like, yeah, And well, I dropped out of seminary. And so I was like, oh, between the two of us, we make one clergy member. And we were <laughs> chatting that night. and It was fun. It was interesting. And at the end of the night, he was talking to me about my kippah and I ended up giving him my kippah. I was like, really? Wow, cool. And he put it away and it was really nice and it was meaningful for him. Years and years and years later, I saw him at a show in Chicago and I asked him if he remembered me. And he pulled out the keeper from his pocket. And he says, I always carry a keeper with me because, like, this is, like, it's, like, a talisman of some kind. Uh, And then I saw him at another show, and he didn't have it with him, but it was his other jacket. But he remembered me. We always sort of remember each other and see each other and have this, like, moment of, like, people that have a deep spiritual connection, even though they, you know, I became a rabbi, he ended up becoming one of Canada's greatest musicians, if you ask me. Um, but, you know, he still has a deep, soulful, you know, side of him, and uh, we still connect over that. Um, and so my naches is that tonight, I'm going to get reunited with my kippa again for one night. Uh, I'm going to go see him in concert, and uh, again, another live concert, a naches. Um, he's not officially Jewish, right, but uh, but the kippa there, right, and it's mine, it's been there forever, um, sort of helps things along. Um, That is my nachos of the week. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of November 19th, Parashat Vayishlach. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our new page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all our episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Twitter at bonjourchai. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. And to join our Slack and chat with us throughout the week. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm
2: David Sklar. The Limud
0: Toronto Festival takes place on Sunday, November 21st. Limud features educators, performers, authors, activists, and innovators from around the world. The Limud Festival of Jewish Learning celebrates creativity, diversity, inclusivity, and discussion. Everyone is welcome. All tickets to Limud are pay what you can. Learn more at limud.ca.